0: Thank you for coming out tonight. It is the dog days of summer, and uh, many of you are watching baseball games, Max, you're not tonight. It's very nice of you to come out here. Um, so I appreciate you taking time to come out. This is the um, third in our four-part summer series on American Judaism, three institutions that shaped and continue to shape the American Jewish experience. Last night we talked about HUC, the first rabbinical academy in America. Tonight we're going to talk about the second one. and um, We are CSP going into our 17th year. We uh, enjoy all of your support so we can bring great teachers to Orange County. If you haven't had a chance to make your donation this year, we are open and welcoming of your contribution any way you can. Um, We take gold, silver, ingots, rubies, diamonds, illuminated manuscripts, and cash. So whatever you'd like to do. Um, Upcoming events, I just wanted to mention real Briefly, is uh, our 16th annual pre-high holiday program is coming up September 10th, which means what else is coming up after September 10th? The holidays, because we do the pre-high holiday. Anyway, um, our speaker this year will be Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Um, other than having a very unusual name, he is not an old Jewish man hunched over with a big beard. He's actually very young. Um, I have a feeling you know him. Okay. Um, a, uh, a very prominent member of, I would say, Open Orthodox today, the Orthodox movement, uh, very involved in many social issues, which is unusual for, for Orthodoxy. Um, hopefully, he will change things. Um, I believe the Forward magazine, uh, Forward newspaper, uh, the Forward, named him one of the most inspirational and um, important rabbis in America today. So I hope you'll come out and spend some time with him. And then on October 10th, Lawrence Barron comes for a a lunch event called The Wandering View, the Jewish Immigrant in World Cinema. And then Rabbi Mark Glickman's in town November 5th to talk about his book Sacred Treasure, The Amazing Discoveries of Forgotten Jewish History. That's just some of what's going on. Um, Rabbi Spitz and I and Rabbi Kavod uh, from Temple Bethel are taking about uh, 50-plus people to Israel October 15th to 27th, so you won't see us, but we'll be having a great time visiting speakers that we want to bring to Orange County. Um, I mentioned we're going back to New York uh, October 16th, 21, 2018. So put that on your calendars if you want to join us. But you have to start training now. It's a very physically demanding program. You can ask the Heymans. They successfully um, managed the first trip. Okay, so please take a moment, take out your cell phones, turn them off. We have Grendel. How's the sound? Is it good? It's too loud for you? Well, he's louder than I am. I don't think you need a microphone, but we have to record. So we'll be recording. We have an OCSE CSP podcast on iTunes. If if this is your first year or first event with CSP, welcome. You can go to iTunes and listen to over 200 recordings of some of the best and most important thinkers of our day. Uh, And we have this series. We'll have it up there as well. Rabbi Mintz is a uh, modern Orthodox rabbi in New York City. Remember I told you he invites you all to Shabbos at his show. We'll get there in a second. He believes that the greatest challenge facing 21st century Jewry is the creation of educated Jews who understand that the key to the Jewish future is the appreciation of the Jewish past. Um, I would say for about 16 years we've been trying to help you in, uh, in educating the community. So we have some great people who have come and learned over the years. Uh, and taught us. Toward this goal, Rabbi Minz teaches Jewish history, law, and thought in a variety of venues. He is an adjunct associate professor of Jewish studies at the City College of New York. Some of you have been there. Some of you went there. Uh, and a member of the Talmud faculty at Shivat Maharat in Riverdale. He's the rabbi and founder of Kilat Reim Ahuvim, a modern orthodox synagogue in Manhattan. It's the Upper West Side, Max. They have a good, he tells me, a good kiddish every Shabbos. I was asked, is it flashek or milchik? It's flashek, which makes it higher level. And people want to know if you have Cholan. They have Cholent, everybody. So what are you all here? If you get going now, you can get to New York. So with that, join me in welcoming Rabbi Adam Mintz to learn about JTS. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you, Ari. Good. Okay. You know who the boss is. <laughs> um, great. Tonight. Um, is the second in our, in our ser- in the second lecture, it's the third lecture of the week, but it's the second lecture in our description and discussion of the rabbinical seminaries. Last night we talked about Hebrew Union College. Tomorrow night, perfect, thank you. Tomorrow night we're going to talk about Yeshiva University, the Orthodox seminary, and tonight we're going to talk about JTS. JTS is right in the middle. But the reason that we're talking about JTS right after HUC is because actually JTS was the founding of JTS in 1886 was a direct reaction to the first graduation of ordained rabbis of Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati. Those who were with us last night, I just began to tell the story that on January 31st, 1886, um, actually take it back a step, In in 1885, in 1883 and then 1885, in 1883 first was the graduation, the ordination of four reform rabbis in Hebrew Union College. That was the first ordination in the history of American Judaism. Following the ordination, the guests were invited to an amazing dinner at an amazing spot. And the first sheet in the handout, we waited for the handout because the first sheet is hard to believe. The first page in the handout is the menu of the Trefa Banquet. We begin with little neck clams. You may notice, as you go down the um, as you go down the, um, the 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 description, a number of things that were clearly not kosher. And then finally, for dessert, they had ice cream. So not only was the food not kosher, but they mixed meat and milk. Some of the rabbis I mentioned last night got up and walked out the minute that they brought the little neck clams to the table. But interestingly, Isaac Mayer-Wise, who was the founder of Hebrew Union College and the, the president of the college, took a completely different approach. Rather than apologizing, he basically used the Trefa Banquet as the springboard to define American Orthodoxy. And therefore, in 1885, two years after the Trafa banquet, he convened what became known as the the Pittsburgh Conference of Reform rabbis. At that Pittsburgh conference, he defined American reform as being Judaism that rejected tradition, including the laws of kosher. Now, he did that for a reason because it 's embarrassing if, at his ordination ceremony he served non kosher food, but well, if it turns out that that 's what American reform stands for, which is being Jewish but eating clams, well then the banquet the treFA banquet was actually the perfect banquet for the reform movement and for the celebration of their ordination so we took a you know he took a kind of bold approach to addressing the trade for banquet. No apologies. And that that set in motion the reform movement as we have it today. But for our purposes tonight, what it also set in motion was a realization on the part of some Jewish leaders in New York who were kind of waiting to see whether Hebrew Union College would be an acceptable rabbinical school for their rabbis. Meaning, would they take rabbis, would they hire rabbis for such a rabbinical school? And they realized, following the Trafa banquet and following the Pittsburgh platform, that no, this was not going to be our school. And therefore, on January 31st, 1886, 12 Jewish men, this is the way the history of JTS records it, 12 Jewish men, laymen and clergy, met in Congregation Sheh with Israel. I imagine that you went to visit Congregation Sheh with Israel on 70th and um, Central Park West. They met in the conference room. That room is still there. To constitute themselves as the Jewish theological seminary association their job was the chain was the training of american rabbis and it was to be based in new york which they felt was the center of judaism now they were not competing with los angeles the rabbi talked about la they weren't competing with los angeles they of course were competing with cincinnati They wanted to make it clear that HUC not only made a mistake in terms of their ideology, in terms of their religious philosophy, they even made a mistake in terms of location. What are they doing in Cincinnati? We're going to have a rabbinical school in New York. Now, to understand the founding of JTS and the beginning of JTS, what I want to really look at is I want to start with two snapshots. One is a snapshot of the founding of JTS, and the second is a snapshot of the years of Solomon Schechter. Sharon talked about Solomon Schechter the, this afternoon. We talked about, that. she mentioned the Geniza, and Ari mentioned Solomon Schechter in, in, um, in Mount Hebron Cemetery, where he still is today. But let's first look for a minute. Before the Solomon Schechter years was the founding of JTS. Who were the founders of JTS? So on one side, there were the, what I would call the traditionalists. The first president was Rabbi Sabato Marias. He actually was Italian born. At the same time, one of the founders was Marcus Jastrow. Anybody who's learned Talmud knows that Marcus Jastrow wrote the Talmudic Dictionary. We still use it today. I'll tell you how important it is. It's actually online. So even if you study Talmud online, you still use the Jastrow Talmud. He was a Reform rabbi. And then there were scholars. Cyrus Adler was a scholar of Semitics. Solomon Salas, so- Solomon Salus Cohn was a physician. And actually this was intentional. It was an attempt to balance and to merge those on what I would call the reform, if I use the term left and right, it's just in terms of to, in- to include the reform movement, as well as to include the Orthodox movement. One of the, in one of the early meetings of JTS, JTS was described as an alternative, and here I'm quoting, to stupid orthodoxy and insane reform. You get a sense. Now, what they wanted to do as being an alternative to stupid orthodoxy and insane reform was really to create a proper American Jewish um, denomination. That was really the key. And they believed then at the begin at the end of the nineteenth and early twentieth century, that the way to do that was to create a rabbinate. You know, today, things are much more complicated. Today, you know, the idea of being, you know, um, bottom-up means that you know, if, you, if you create a strong laity, then, um, you know, kind of that will define the movement. But in those days, and you know, 115 years ago, there was no, 120 years ago, there was no question that the way to establish a movement was to establish a rabbinate. So JTS was not only in the business of of training rabbis, they were in the business of what they wanted to do was to train American rabbis who would define American Judaism. And to understand that, you have to understand, you know, what they were up against. On the left, we explained the Reform, HUC, the Trefa Banquet, the Pittsburgh Platform. That's pretty clear what they were up against. And it's not surprising that some members of the reform movement actually supported JTS because you know that was a critical moment and some of the reform leaders felt that, you know, that, that HUC had gone too far. But what about on the right? On the right, on the orthodox. So there was, no, there was not yet Yeshiva University or REITs or an orthodox rabbinical school. What there really was, was um, several hundred thousand Russian Orthodox Jews who lived on the Lower East Side. And here, we need just a moment of explanation. And I'll use the example of my great-grandfather, just because I know it's the same story of almost everybody sitting here. My great-grandfather, Shraga Feivel came to New York around the year, 19, um, sorry, 19, 1890. He came from a shtetl in northern Poland called Moava. And he was a chassid. He didn't dress like a chassid, but the, the family tradition is that he came from a Hasidic family. His father was a butcher in Moava. His name was Leibolashochet. And when Shraga Feivel Mintz came here, he wanted to continue the family business. And he became what my father likes to call an itinerant shochet, which means that he traveled up and down the East Coast and he would slaughter animals for Jewish communities who didn't have local shochtim, local ritual slaughterers. And that's, you know, that's how he made a living. I don't know what you call a living exactly. But that's where my grandfather was born and that's where his siblings were born. And that was basically their life. He came here in 1890, didn't know a word of English. I know he didn't know a word of English because my father tells me that my father knew him in the, 19th, you know, when my, in the 1930s, and he didn't know a word of English in the 1930s either. So I imagine when he came in 1890, he didn't know a word of English either. So, and he, yeah, maybe, it's possible, right? Um, and he, he didn't know a word of English. He wore a hat. Um, you know, kind of a, you know, kind of European hat, not a strimal, not a Hasidic hat, but it wasn't the kind of hat that, you know, that New Yorkers were wearing at the time. He wore a long coat or a long jacket, and he had a beard. You were not going to mistake him for a local, right? He wasn't the kind of guy who you met in Yankee Stadium on a Sunday afternoon. But there were several hundred thousand five menses. But what happened? My grandfather, who was born, he was born in Maine, right? The itinerant show, he was born in Maine. Then they went to live in Scranton also. Um, And my grandfather went to public school and went to public high school because that was the only place to go. My grandfather gave the valedictory address at Stanford High School around the year 1915. My grandfather, then, by the way, went on to REITs and became an Orthodox rabbi and served in the Orthodox rabbinate for over 60 years. But that's not what we're talking about. That we'll get to tomorrow night when we talk about REITs. I want to talk about my grandfather who gave the valedictory address in, Sta- in, um, in Scranton High School in 1915. This may surprise you, but that address was not given in Yiddish. I mean, that was the second generation. The second generation was an American generation. It was a generation that didn't want the Yiddish of the parents, that looked American, that spoke American, spoke English, but means spoke American, went to college, want, you know, wanted professions. They wanted to be part of America. And JTS really responded to that group. By the time JTS gets going, in the 1890s, and the first decades of the 20th century, they are really responding to what historians refer to as the second generation of Eastern European Jews. The generation of Eastern European Jews that had become American, but very much wanted to maintain the traditions of their parents. Now, that's not entirely fair either. You know, with going to Scranton High School, with going to college and with getting professions, you know, there was a challenge. Were they going to maintain the traditions? Obviously, kosher was not as easy as it is today, obviously. And there was a six-day work week, it wasn't until the Depression, until the 30s, that they introduced a five-day work week in America. So, and you know the old story, and that is they told you, you know, when 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 the Jew went and they told their boss that they couldn't work on Saturday, they said, that's fine, if you don't come in to work on Saturday, then don't bother coming into work on Monday either. It means you'll be looking for a new job. So there were a lot of challenges, and JTS wanted to ad- address that group. So on one hand, JTS is rejecting the Trefa Banquet, the Pittsburgh platform, where the reform movement has gone. But at the same time, they're not exactly rejecting orthodoxy. But what they're doing is they're trying to respond to an American type of traditionalism. The term orthodox, at least at this point, is not a relevant term in America. You know, orthodox really was a German term, was a Samson Raphael Hirsch term in Germany. In Poland, in Russia, where all these Jews came from, they didn't know from orthodox. Because they didn't know about an alternative, right? There was was religious and there was secular, right? There were those who kept the laws and the traditions and those who didn't. There was no word for it. Obviously, there wasn't conservative, but there wasn't even reform really in Russia and in Poland and in Lithuania. You either were or you weren't. And JTS tried to create a movement, try to create a niche right there in the middle. And just by, you know, when you describe it, it sounds so obvious, right? Obviously, I mean, this is what America needed, right? Well, it took at least 50 years for America to realize what it needed, <laughs> right? But um, even with that, um, you know, this, I, the, creating this niche, it's very, very hard to create a niche. Because generally what people do is they default back to what they're used to. So the reform re- defaults back to reform, and the Orthodox, the traditional, re- default back to, the, to Orthodoxy. Just to tell you what they always say in Orthodoxy, what they say about the second generation American Orthodox, they say that the shul that they didn't go to was an Orthodox shul. Meaning that they would prefer not to go to shul, but to be affiliated with an orthodox shul than actually to be a member of a conservative or Reform shul. Why is that? Well, part of that is because they were afraid of their parents, right? If their parents heard that they weren't going to an orthodox shul, if Shraga Fievel Mintz heard that his children didn't go to an orthodox shul, that would have been the end. But more than that, you know, if you grew up in a traditional Orthodox, you know, religious shul, that's what you were familiar with. Now, as, as they started working on Shabbos, they couldn't go to shul anymore. It didn't mean they became conservative. It just means the shul they didn't go to was an Orthodox shul. So that just gives you a sense. This was a very, very tricky moment. So that's, that's the moment. That's the moment that JTS tries to carve out in American Judaism, and then what happened? You see, that's good, so they want to carve out that moment. But how are you going to create respected and respectable rabbis? Well, they decided that the first thing they needed was to create an institution, a rabbinical school, that would be respected not only for its religion, for that religious niche, but also for the quality of scholarship. Welcome, Solomon Schechter. Solomon Schechter is born in 1847. He's born in Romania. That's good, by the way. He's part of the Eastern European tradition. He comes from a Chabad family and he receives a traditional yeshiva education. In 1890, He goes to Cambridge, where eventually he becomes a lecturer in Talmud and rabbinics. In 1896, and Sharon spoke about this today, 18 when? in 1896, she'll correct me later, he travels to Cairo, he's introduced to the Geniza again, as Sharon said before, he doesn't discover the Geniza, he actually cleans out the Geniza. But he, 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 he's alerted to the Geniza, and he um, goes and he finds, you know, several hundred thousand fragments. Now, and he brings it back to Cambridge. Why is that all important? Because JTS wants to become a world-class academic institution. Salman Schechter is seen as the premier Jewish scholar in the world. Definitely the premier English-speaking Jewish scholar in the world. He's invited to America in 1895, and he gives a series of lectures and he meets with the JTS leadership. You imagine, this is what you call a tryout. I mean, he was Salman Schechter, but he needed to be tried out. And in 1899, he's invited to lead the seminary. What was his salary, everybody? $4,000 a year. Um, he was warned, there was only one thing he was warned about, and that was that the New York libraries were no match for the libraries in Cambridge. Now, interestingly, 1899, Salomon Schechter doesn't come until April 1902. In JTS, they weren't so sure that they wanted Salomon Schechter. He spoke English with an accent, right? He still had his Romanian accent. They weren't sure that he represented the American Jew that they wanted to represent. Isn't that fascinating, right? Again, this niche between the Reform on one side and the religious, what we'll call Orthodox on the other side. So what do you need? They want an American Jew. Salman Schechter is the premier, you know, Jewish scholar in the world, but he's not exactly an American Jew. Well, Somehow they get over it, or they don't really get over it, and I'll explain in a minute, but he's invited, and he arrives. At his inauguration, he delivers the address. If you look at the newspapers, you know, in those days, there were Jewish newspapers all over the place. They were published every day, some in Yiddish, some in English. The first thing they point out is the fact that Salman Schechter gives his inaugural address in a heavy, heavy, accent he talked about the need for inclusivity to include the mystic the rationalist the traditional and the critical that sounds right means that you want it you know you know it's hard when you want to create a middle ground so what do you do there are two ways to create a middle ground one is to take from the left and take from the right and then kinda make a challenge we talked about challenge right you kinda make a challenge but you're a challenge with all the ingredients so therefore you fit in the middle or no what you do is you um, you you create a model which is a unique model for yourself and this is very important Schechter, Solomon Schechter takes the Chulant model. He tries to take the best from the right and the best from the left. And what Mordechai Kaplan said at this time, and this is so interesting, so interesting, sorry. He said that JTS under Schechter stood for uh, 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 an an adjective list, I can't pronounce that word, adjective list, adjective less Judaism which means there was no adjective. It wasn't orthodox. It wasn't reform. He didn't like the word conservative. It was just Judaism. You know when they say that, that it's doomed to failure, right? You, you, no, nobody operates that way. It's like when you're, you know, you're eight. When someone tells you they're apolitical, you know that you're about to get a political speech, right? So the same thing when you're an um, adjective Judaism, you know that there's a problem. And let's, 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 let's unpack that one step at a time. Well, the first thing that's interesting, of course, not surprising, is that what, um, what Salman Schechter is best at is, um, is, is, you know, is putting together a faculty that's very, very impressive. And if you look at the next page in the handout, you see, just look for a minute, right? This is the schedule of courses, 1905, 1906. Look at 9, let's just take 9.30 to 10.30. So on Monday, you have Jewish theology with President Solomon Schechter. Not bad. On Tuesday, you have Hellenistic literature with Alexander Marx. Alexander Marx is the son in law of, um, of Rabbi David Svi Hoffman, who was the rector of the Hildesheimer Yeshiva, one of the premier scholars and the first librarian of the JTS library. Outline of Talmudic laws, Professor Louis Ginsberg, who was a great Talmudist. Thursday, Yerushalmi Babakama. There is no yeshiva in the world ever that has actually had a class in Yerushalmi, Baba Kama. That's pretty good, right? President Schechter. And Friday, Canada and Text the Bible Professor Friedland. I mean, you can go down the list of the different professors. So the professors, the um, you know, are extremely well respected. He has put together a curriculum that can be topped by nobody. But the problem is, has he created an adjectiveless Judaism? So, one of the most prominent Jews of the period was someone by the name of Isidore Singer. He was the editor of the Jewish Encyclopedia. You know, there was a time, now, now people don't buy books anymore. But in 1971, the Encyclopedia Judaica was published, and that was really, that, those were the go-to volumes for decades. If you wanted to know something Jewish, before Google, you went to the Encyclopedia Judaica. But actually, Encyclopedia Judaica was not the first English Jewish encyclopedia. The first English Jewish encyclopedia was the Jewish Encyclopedia 1906, which is extremely important. Now it's important as a historical document as well. So it's not surprising that during these years, Isidore Singer, who was the editor of the Jewish encyclopedia, is kind of the last word in defining what Judaism meant. And he writes that he expected Solomon Schechter to bring liberal Judaism to America. Instead, he said that JTS was the home for the pseudo-Orthodox of Madison Avenue and Fifth Avenue. There is nothing worse that he could have said. Okay, what does that mean? What that means is that Schechter didn't carve out this middle ground. There was no carving out a middle ground. What he did was, the term I like to use is kind of orthodox light. Means it's not orthodox like Schragefivelminz. It's orthodox like the second generation of minces, which is Orthodox with no beards. Orthodox delivering valedictory addresses in Scranton High School. Orthodox where, you know, you try not to work on Shabbos. You do the best you can, but you can't lose your job, and you can't not get, a, not, get a, you know, not get a degree because you don't go to school on Shabbos. You do the best that you can. He says that's what he created for those kind of Jews who wanted to say that they were Orthodox, but they were cheating just a little bit. That's what he created. He says... Um, interestingly, how did Salman Schechter react to that? Well, he didn't really react to that, but he did, you know, so what do you think? So on one hand, he's criticized as basically just creating a a seminary for the pseudo-Orthodox. On the other hand... He's created, he's criticized, sorry, by the, um, by the reform who want him to be even more liberal, right? Like this guy Isidore Singer, he's criticized, you know, you're just, you're just a, you know, a haven for the pseudo-Orthodox, you should be more liberal. His response to that was, well, we cannot all be born in Wabash, Indiana. Okay? It's all about Wabash, Indiana. Now, um, so that was really, um, you know, that that was Solomon Schechter, a great scholar, a great leader of JTS. But at the end, he really was unable to carve out that middle ground. And, you know, when we look back on it, you know, historically, you know, Maybe at that time it was really impossible. Maybe there was no, how was he going to define the middle ground? Let me, just, let me just take a second to try to explain that. Um, by the way, I'll just tell you that one of the other things that the, the Orthodox complained that there was mixed dancing at the Hanukkah party in JTS in 1904. So i want to tell you, that was what they considered to be the laxity, you know, the, the laxness in, a, in observance in JTS. Just to give you a sense of what we're talking about, you know, kind of carving out that middle ground. His professors were all from traditional Orthodox backgrounds. That was the only place that he was going to be able to get the kind of professors that he wanted. I mean Louis Ginsburg was educated in Valojan, in kind of the, the grandmother, the grandfather of all, you know, of all yeshivas today. And Alexander Marx is part of, you know, part of the premier German Orthodox family. Because for Solomon Schechter to carve out that middle ground, you know, he needed to get teachers, professors, rabbis who were going to be able to teach the level that he wanted. The professors in HUC, they were, with very few exceptions, they weren't going to be able to do that. The minute that your professors are Orthodox, you know, I don't even, I'm not talking even here about Orthodox and observance. I'm talking about Orthodox in background. I'm talking about the way that they taught, the manners in which they taught. And as long as they were teaching as Orthodox professors, as Orthodox rabbis, the school was gonna have an Orthodox, a traditional, a religious slant to it, and he was always gonna be criticized by the liberals, by those who wanted him to have introduced more liberal Judaism. By the way, and this is an important by the way, this was an issue you know, throughout the history of JTS. And that is that as long as the professors, as the rabbis, came from Eastern Europe, right now we no longer have that, but as long as the rabbis came from Eastern Europe, whether they were um, Professor Abraham Joshua Heschel, whether they were Professor um, Saul Lieberman, Louis Finkelstein was the chancellor, was the president, they all came from, you know, from religious backgrounds in Eastern Europe. So there always was going to be that tension. We'll come back to that tension at the end, when we talk about the ordination of women within the conservative movement. But, before we get there, we need just, when we talk about this middle ground, and really, you know, I'm, 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 I'm critical, right? I'm saying that Salman Schechter, JTS, was created to establish this middle ground, and basically, through their first 20, 30, 40 years, they're successful in a way, but again, they're considered to be orthodox light, not really defining a movement or something special in their movement. When does this change? This changes after the Second World War. After the Second World War in the 1950s, So we have, right, of course, the, you know, we have the beginning of the baby boomers and the creation of a whole new generation of people, Americans, but now we're going to talk about Jews, who are all very similar and very much the same. What does that mean? So the soldiers come back from Europe. They all want an education, right? The government pays for their education and they all get married more or less at the same time, and they all get jobs at more or less the same time, and they all have children at more or less the same time. And therefore, even though it's not fair to say that the suburbs were created after the Second World War, because a sociologist or historian will tell you that actually suburbs were created after the First World War. But for our purposes in the Jewish sense, the Jews tended to stay within the city, close to their parents, until after the Second World War. But after the Second World War, and in the 1950s, the building of highways, Jews took advantage of this creation of suburbs around the big centers, the big Jewish centers in America. Just to give kind of the classic example, there was a Jewish builder by the name of Abraham Levitt, who decided after the Second World War that he he was going to crack the suburb, you know, the the the, sub, the suburb um, business, and therefore he created he built seventeen thousand of exactly the same house in Levittown, Long Island. Levittown, Long Island, which is still there, Levittown, Long Island. It's, um, it's right next to West Hempstead. I don't know, BP people... right next to West Hempstead. And so, seventeen thousand families moved out. It cost about seven thousand nine hundred and ninety-nine dollars for a house—not bad. He threw in a dishwasher, and several times during the year, he had a special, you know, incentive. He threw in an eight-inch black-and-white television. When I discuss this with my students in City College, I explain to them that most of, you know, that their iPads are larger than the the televisions that he threw in in, in in the 1950s. But let's think about it for a minute. So Jews, of course, take advantage of moving to the suburbs, right? They have families. You know, what do Jews need? Jews want a community. Jews want to be shooting distance to their parents, to their families, but not too close. And therefore, the suburbs really, you know, serve that purpose. What was the main problem of the suburbs? The main problem of the suburbs was that when you lived in the city, when you lived right close by, the shul, whatever the shul was, was walking distance. All of a sudden now, the shul is not going to be walking distance anymore. Levittown, 17,000 houses. If they had the shul on one side of Levittown, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're gonna be able to walk to the shul. In 1960, the conservative movement came out with probably the most important, I mean, this also is its own lecture, what they call the driving tshuva, in which the RA, the Rabbinic Assembly, NJTS, came out and said, that members of the conservative movement are allowed to drive on Shabbat, but only to shul. Do not pass go, do not collect $200, which means very simply, they couldn't stop on the way, right? They couldn't stop to shop, they couldn't stop to go to the movies on the way home. Now. At the moment, you know, the the success of that tshuva is fascinating. You know, whether it was successful or not is fascinating, not for right now. But you understand the logic was what was so important. And that was that the conservative movement realized that they, in, in in the suburbanization of America, the only way they would be able to maintain a community was if they allowed people to drive to shul. So here's what you have. Let's take Levittown for a minute. Let's take a block in Levittown for one minute. You have a block in Levittown, and you have a whole bunch of Jews. All the same, their parents were kind of, you know, traditional Orthodox. Their grandparents, you know, had long beards and names were Shraga Five. the whole business, you know exactly. They're all the same. The kids are the same age, and the wives are, you know, friends, and the husbands go to work and have the same kind of jobs and everything. And there's one shul in town. The shul's on the other side of Levittown. And it's a traditional shul. I don't know what traditional means yet. We'll talk about it in one second. It's a traditional shul. Now, you're going to go to shul? Well, the only way you're going to go to shul is if you, um, is, is if you drive, because it's too far to walk. So the ones who are more orthodox, they tended not to drive to shul. And the ones who are less orthodox tended to drive to shul. What happens? And this is the, the, the phenomenon of the suburbs, the Levittown phenomenon. You know, if someone on your block went to shul, and shul was fun, and their kids came back on Saturday morning and told your kids that shul was fun, you were under a lot of pressure next Shabbos to do what? Go to shul. And you know, maybe at the beginning you sent your kids with them because you didn't want to drive on Shabbos, but it wasn't very long before you got in the car on Shabbos to go to shul because what? Because, you know, that was a Levittown phenomenon. That was that's what the, the suburbs meant. Everybody did the same thing. And it was good. It was good and it was bad. And you know, and the hippies obviously came out of that because, you know, when you live in Levittown too long, you just have to become a hippie, right? We understand all of that. But in those years when Levittown was successful, it was successful for that reason. It was successful because um, everyone was the same, and everybody did the same thing. And there was a tremendous sense of community, and therefore there's a sense of Jewish community. So, what do you have in the shuls in Levitator? Well, you now interestingly have a very you know have a combination of Jews who are more liberal and Jews who are more traditional. Basically, the only thing that they all have in common is that they all live in Levittown, and they all either decided to to drive to shul on Shabbos or were convinced by their children or their neighbors to drive to shul on Shabbos. Now, what kind of shul are you going to have? America in the 1950s. You know what the billboard said, paid for by the Protestants. You know what it said? The family that prays together stays together. Family prayer was in. Mechitza was out, right? If the reason you're going to shul is because your kids want you to go to shul, and because that's part of the Levittown sense of community, what is the point of having half your family sit with the men and half your family sit with the women? There was no machitza. and you know that kind of was kind of okay for everybody, because that, that was the family that prays together, stays together. The service though was very traditional. Because most of the people who were in the shul, and interestingly in many cases the rabbis themselves, were from the orthodox movement, or at least tended towards orthodoxy, and therefore the sitter was more or less traditional, the tunes were more or less traditional, it was not egalitarian in any way, shape, or form. It means the chazan was a male; only males read from the Torah; um, only males would would be called to the Torah. And even the idea in the nineteen fifties that the chazan would face the congregation was something that was only practiced in rare occasions. Generally speaking, right? The chazan faced the ark, the same way it was done in Orthodox schools. But, and here's an important but, you know what made the conservative shul of the 1950s so successful? Number one was youth groups. What we take for granted today, I mean, what shul, I don't care whether you're Orthodox, conservative, or reform, I mean, you need to have a youth congregation and youth groups, right? That defines a shul today. But in the 1950s, that was their brilliance. Their brilliance were youth groups on Shabbos, on Shabbos during davening, Saturday afternoons, Sunday morning softball games. They had Hebrew schools, the creation of the Salman Shechter schools. And all of a sudden, the American conservative movement has its moment. Wow. It has its moment. This is it. They've finally done it. They've, sorry, they've finally done it. They've, they've identified the perfect middle, Right? The Reform movement is not a factor anymore that 's interesting, right you know in eighteen eighty six the conservative movement is founded as a reaction to the reform movement that 's ancient history they 're not fighting with the reform movement anymore they 're now question of how are they different than the Orthodox. And what happens is that they kind of incorporate orthodoxy to create a movement which is really traditional conservative Judaism. There are some sociologists who refer to it as conservadox. But this conservadox movement was easily identifiable from the reform, but also from an orthodoxy that by the 1950s, kind of the European, the Eastern European orthodoxy had become just a little bit stale and dry. Right? It was hard to, you know, to maintain the energy of the five Minses when he came here in 1890, you know, to create a Jewish Orthodox family. You know, by the 1950s, I was kind of stale. Their children wanted life. Their children wanted energy. Their children wanted to make sure, bottom line, that their children would be connected to Judaism. You know, the Eastern European Orthodoxy didn't do it anymore. The conservative movement did it. and JTS was the place where you were trained to be a rabbi for this movement. Marshall Sclare, one of the great Jewish sociologists of the 1950s, predicted that 50 years from now, that's 20 years ago, that the conservative movement would be American Judaism and orthodoxy would disappear. He was wrong, but that's not the point. The point is that in the 1950s and 1960s, it really looked that way he wasn't some foolish guy who was just you know who thought he was a prophet he was a he was a respected sociologist it really looked that way that was jts that was the middle road what happened well the orthodox responded and we'll talk more about this tomorrow night let me just respond by saying that the orthodox and in this case they were led by Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik, who was the head of Yeshiva University. Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik recognized that if he didn't stand up for orthodoxy, orthodoxy would disappear. You know. Orthodoxy, not an Eastern European, we're not talking about the orthodoxy of you know, the, what we call black hat orthodoxy, but modern orthodoxy. Orthodoxy where, you know, where, where, the, where, where everybody went to college and had professions and was, you know, and, and was part of the modern world, that was gonna disappear. They were all gonna become part of the conservative movement because the conservative movement was American Judaism. It worked perfectly. So Rabbi led a movement in the 1960s. He said, basically, that if you want to be part of orthodoxy, you may not daven in a shul that does not have a machitza. Basically, what Rabbi Soloveitchik said was that the machitza is the line in the sand. And that is, if you want to be orthodox, and you know, he was talking, of course, to the rabbis in YU, you may not, you may not, daven in a shul or become a rabbi of a shul that does not have a mechitza. And with that, slowly, gradually, it took 20, 25 years, he really created an energetic and vibrant modern orthodoxy. Which in which the members of the synagogues weren't really different than those people who in Levittown who dominated the conservative shul in the 1950s and 1960s. But Rabbi Soloveitchik had, you know, had kept them within orthodoxy or drew, drew, drew them back to orthodoxy by saying, Listen, you want to be part of my movement, you need to. Have a mechitza in your shul. That's very, very interesting. Again, we'll come back to that tomorrow night because that's very much about the development of orthodoxy. So that was number one. So in the 1950s, 1960s, that was the heyday of the conservative movement. They defined themselves very clearly. And then orthodoxy, as, as you would expect, and I think that's nice, that shows you the vibrancy of orthodoxy, that orthodoxy responded. And then... And then there was a battle about the ordination of women in JTS. As I said last night, HUC ordained the first woman in 1972. That very same year, a group of of committed conservative women um, established a group called Ezrat Nashim. And in 1972, they interrupted the annual RA convention, the rabbinical assembly um, convention, to present their demands. They wanted, number one, full membership rights in the RA. They wanted full ritual rights, which means they could read from the Torah and they could be the chazanit and all of that. And they wanted the right of women to serve as rabbis and cantors in the conservative movement. In 1972, Gershon Cohn took over as chancellor of the seminary. He also came from a very orthodox background. His mother was a teacher in the Shlomit School in Brooklyn. He came from an orthodox background. He grew up in Camp Massad. But he was part, right, in 1972, he was part of that movement in the 1950s and 1960s where, you know, of traditional conservatism, he was very much committed to the conservative movement. And he upheld JTS's opposition to women's ordination. And he was very clear that any fight about women's ordination would tear apart the movement. Now, in 1973, these things always happen slowly. In 1973, the RA, the Rabbinical Assembly, the Law Committee, um, approves the fact that women can count for a minyan. Okay that was the first step. They can they didn't allow them to have full ritual rights, but they were allowed to count for a minion. Interestingly, you know, there's a shul to this day, there's a shul in JTS, there's a service in JTS, which kind of didn't always follow what the conservative movement was doing. It followed what JTS and what the professors of JTS wanted. The shul in JTS did not count women. So the RA said you should count women for a minion. The Shul and JTS waited for 10 men. Now, the question is, what was the issue? Well, a big part of the issue was that there were two professors, extremely well-respected professors in JTS, who were opponents of women's ordination. That was their line in the sand. They were Rabbi Saul Lieberman. Rabbi Saul Lieberman who came from a, um, a, a distinguished rabbinic um, family in, in, in Lithuania. His wife was from an even more distinguished rabbinic family in Lithuania. And Rabbi David Weiss who himself, he was a friend of um, Elie Wiesel, he grew up in Hungary, very much part of a Hungarian Orthodox tradition. And they basically said that you are going to destroy the conservative movement if you, or destroy JTS, if you allow women to become rabbis, and that they would have no part in it. Now, there were, of course, proponents of women's ordination. Robert Gordas, the great professor Robert Gordas, said, that the challenge of the conservative movement is to bring halakha into conformity with our ethical standards. And that constitutes part of the unfinished business of contemporary conservative Judaism. Here you go, everybody. We're back to the same question. Women rabbis, That actually would distinguish the conservative movement from orthodoxy, right? Exactly what Salman Schechter, so many decades before, had been afraid to do, um, you know, to distinguish the JTS from orthodoxy. They're fighting about it again. Should we do it or should we not do it? What happened? Well... To you know, to kind of um, to to kind of abbreviate a very long, complicated story. Chancellor Gershon Cohn began, as I said, as an opponent, but over time he realized that um, you know that there was no alternative other than to ordain women rabbis. There was a vote scheduled for May nineteen seventy nine. But dissension within the JTS community, specifically from professors Lieberman and Halivni delayed the vote. What they did was a good way to delay the vote was that they conducted a um, they conducted a survey of member synagogues. Right, that always takes a long time. So they conducted a survey of member synagogues. They found that basically the syd- the this is what they found an interesting thing. They found that the, the members were divided. It was more or less 50-50. It was a little bit more in favor of women rabbis, but it was more or less 50-50. But what they found to be most important was only one in ten of the opponents would leave the movement if they ordained women. You see, that's the key of the whole thing. Now, um, what happens? So the vote is planned for May of 1979. It doesn't happen. In March of 1983, Rabbi Saul Lieberman dies. On October 24th, 1983, that same year, there is finally a vote in favor of the ordination of women. You think that that was a coincidence? No way, right? They waited for Rabbi Lieberman to pass away. And then, as Gershon Cohn said in, the, you know, you know, in, a, in a statement following the vote, that by that time, it was hardly a debate. By that time, they were just waiting for the vote, which they knew would come out this way. And Cohn said that the seminary has taken a major step in the, in, in the, in the um, equalization of women in Jewish religious life. As Nashim started in 1972 demanding that women would you know, have the right to be, to be rabbis and, and would be ordained in JTS, finally happened in 1983. Now, I have to be fair. David Weiss Halivni leaves JTS and becomes a professor in Columbia because he will not be part of JTS. He also helped found something called the Union for Traditional Conservative Judaism, which was his own yeshiva t which was really, never really got off the ground. But he left JTS, and he was never affiliated with JTS again. And what do you see? What you see is, and we're not talking about JTS today. JTS today and the future of the conservative movement is a fascinating topic, but there are, there are those in this room who are much better equipped to talk about that than I am. I'm a historian. Now, what I I want to take away from today's lecture is the idea of JTS trying to create that perfect middle road between the reform on one side and the orthodox on the other side. How you do this. Since the day that JTS was founded in 1986, they have been struggling – 1886 they've been struggling with how to create this middle road they had the founders had this problem Salman Schechter had this problem for a couple of decades they did it very well with conservadocs and traditional conservative and kind of the family that prays together stays together but then again in the eight in the, in, the, in the 70s and 80s again the movement was split apart but in the end of the day the idea of giving equal rights to women I think defined the conservative movement in a Way in which it was clearly different than reform, obviously on one side, and orthodoxy on the other side. Now, whether ultimately that was a good move for JTS or not, and you know what the future of JTS, um, you know, looks like, that's for another lecture. Thank you very much.